Lucy Lawler Freese, Rival Entertainment and the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm on Promoter 101. Happy Independence Day, everyone, and welcome to a special 4th of July Promoter 101! That's right. A happy 4th of July, everybody, and welcome to the first of the brand new Nashville sessions. We've got some amazing interviews. The first one coming up today is Q Prime South's Fielding Logan, talking about Eric Church and the Black Keys. A great interview ahead for your Independence Day. And a war story with industry legend Vince Bannon. Always a great sit-down. Episode 165 of Promoter 101 starts right now. I am Barbara Hubbard. Mark Campana. Ted Heineck. Skip Richmond. Nick Miller. Joshua Knight. Darren Rosen. Brian Hill. Greg Wolf. Darren Zimmerman. Scott Jampino. Jason Bernstein. And I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101, the greatest podcast in all the land. Hey, check it out. We got some past Promoter 101 episodes stashed away. Don't tell anybody, but just for you. Episode 97, totally the one to check out. We had a legend on the podcast, and we had Barbara Hubbard, a.k.a. Mother Hubbard, on the podcast looking back at her legendary career. It was an amazing interview. Check it out. Plus, Paradigm's Joshua Knight gets into the details and the deep weeds on how to break a band and how to have clear longevity working from Chicago, Illinois. And we had the Tobin Center's Aaron Zimmerman turning the tables on Steiny. Another great sit down, Dan. If you got a free minute, feel free to drop us a review, subscribe, tell us what you're thinking, and maybe even tell a few friends about us. It's never too late. Tell your friends. Hey, everybody. It's Jesse Lundy from Point Entertainment here in Philadelphia, and I'm on Promoter 101. News of the Week. Luke, what can you tell us all about Tay-Tay and Scooter's big blow-up? Well, Dan, maybe that'll be a good time to start the news of the week. Sunday morning, the Wall Street Journal broke the $300 million deal between Scooter Braun's Ithaca Holdings and Scott Borchetta's Big Machine Label Group, which is home to music of country stars like Florida Georgia Line, Thomas Rhett, and Taylor Swift. For $300 million, Ithaca Holdings, through its private equity partner, Carlisle Group, would purchase Big Machine, and Borchetta is set to continue as the president and CEO of the label and is now a board member for Ithaca Holdings, as well as, and I quote, a significant but minority shareholder in the company. More interestingly was the widely reported dispute between Big Machine and its partners and its most valuable star, Taylor Swift. Swift, who left the label for Universal Music Group last fall, called the purchase by Scooter Braun, the manager to Kanye West and Justin Bieber, her worst-case scenario. Swift went to Tumblr, alleging she had pleaded for a chance to own her own works for years, but the Big Machine instead attempted to make her earn back albums one at a time under the terms of a new deal, which she ultimately walked away from. 
Borchetta clapped back on Sunday night on Big Machine's website, issuing a post stating that he had texted Swift to give her a heads up about the announcement and that under the terms of the Big Machine deal that Swift ultimately walked away from, that his company would have immediately transferred 100% of her masters back to her. That was not the end of the airing of Dirty Laundry this weekend. Pundits like Bob Levsis weighed in, as did Eric Logan, who's a Big Machine board member and former Oprah Winfrey Network Prexy. Even Braun's wife, entrepreneur and philanthropist Yael Cohen and author of all you need to know about the music business and super lawyer Don Passman added on. While the 4th of July has slowed down some of the news about this, it's probably the most interesting airing of Dirty Laundry that I've ever seen. Diamond, that's right, a diamond record. Or wait, was it? Little Nas X took to socials this weekend and told the world that his hit Old Town Road was certified diamond. He retweeted a tweet from an account, Chart Data, who reported the breakout single had passed the milestone. But a few hours later, the RIA came correct with a tweet that issued it. The song is only three times platinum. Not quite another spat, but good proof that yes, sometimes the internet is wrong. And finally, Spotify is shutting down a program that allowed indie artists to upload their own music to the streaming service. The new upload tool was first introduced in beta in September, offering U.S. artists an easy way to add tracks and their accompanying metadata to Spotify with just a few clicks. Now, artists are being given until the end of the month to transition to another distributor and will only be paid for streams on their uploaded content through July 2019. The company, in its announcement of the shutdown, said that synergies are better focused on the development of features and tools that are unique to Spotify, like tools for playlist submission, for example, or upgrades to its Spotify for Artists dashboard, which is used by more than 300,000 creators and their teams. That'll do it for News of the Week. B101 in the morning with Stiney and the Peers. Only on Promoter 101. Kicking it off on episode 165 of Promoter 101, we're going to start things off with a war story with Vince Bannon. Hanging out with Vince Bannon for an epic war story. What do you got for us? Oasis, 1994. The first time we brought Oasis to a wonderful L.A. It was one of these times where record companies had way too much money. We did know that Oasis was going to be a monstrous band. And we were really excited about breaking another U.K. artist because we were a very U.K. company at that time. The American version of Epic Records, where the president was Richard Griffith, who was from the U.K., who went on to manage One Direction. We had Jed Doherty, who's actually now a major film producer. He was our SVP and David Massey, another Brit. So we had a very British company and we wanted, everybody wanted to break a Brit act. And so anyways, we had Oasis here and we had them lined up to play the wonderful whiskey here. But we decided to do a very kind of what I would quote unquote, a spinal tap party on top of the roof of a hotel that still exists called the London. But back then it was called the Bellage. And we had plenty to drink and eat there. However, I did notice the Oasis kids were uh, indulging in lots of wonderful, uh, how would you say, party favors. I was concerned about their ability to maybe do the show that night. Long story short was I went up to Richard and I said, Richard, you know, these guys are really drinking and partying a lot. In his wonderful British accent, Richard goes, Vince, don't worry about it. They're British. They can handle it. No worries. Right. So I said, OK. And we all took all the media. We had that's when we would take a lot of media over to see the band. And it was L.A., a very media town and it was jam packed. Everybody was calling me in the world to get into this gig because Oasis was the hottest thing. And you had a lot of celebrities that wanted to attend and such. So we go over to the show, the band's on stage, and they're starting to play. It just does not gelling right. Uh, the songs don't seem to feel right. And by the third song, and it wasn't gelling right, and we didn't know what was wrong, except for the uh, fact of how much they uh, indulged at the uh, show before. For no apparent reason, Liam turns around and cold cocks Noel. 
And Noel's feet went up in the air. I never seen a guy hit so hard in my life, right? And that was it. End of the show. End of the tour. <laughs> End of everything, right? As far as that goes, right? And I think they broke up for a week. But that was one of my favorite stories because it becomes obviously the uh, live element and the record company element and hoping for a, <laughs> a good outcome that quite didn't happen, but it actually didn't hurt the band at all and just made it all special. Before I let you go, yes, you were at record label world when labels had real money. They were the kings of the industry. We were the VCs, yes. You were a concert promoter before that. You're like, yeah. you partner at Ritual, Detroit's biggest indie at the time, but you guys were a hot, massive promoter. You moved on to Getty and were part of building that massive machine. You had three awesome places where you were sitting on top. What was your favorite time of the three of those? You know what? I'm going to say this to you. Ritual was amazing. It really was a spiritual amazing. Amir, my former partner, who's now still in the business, and I'm still very close to, Perry Lavoine, who went on to be head of touring at Live Nation. We had a, a full-time DJ who worked for us in the office, DJ Diana. It was special because we were making it up as we go along. And I think that Getty proved to be like that for me for a, a long time period, because we were actually making it up as we go along. The record company thing was, it was fun. I learned a ton, but I would have to say, and there's nothing like owning your own business and making it up as you go along. Even if you make mistakes, keep making them, because you'll learn. Well, the great Vince Bannon on Promoter 101. Thank you, Dan. Vince is as big as they come. Love that he dropped by to visit us here on Promoter 101. If you want to play three questions or you want to turn the tables on us, shoot us an email. Do it right now, right this second. Open your laptops, get out your phones. Hit us at Steiny at Promoter101.net. Let us know what three questions you're dying to ask. Preview a little bit for us the war story you might tell. There's not too many more opportunities to, for those things to get told or for those questions to get asked. So get them in now. CJ Strzok from WME. We're on Promoter 101. Promoter 101 Flashbacks. Episode 34. Stuart Galbraith. Okay, and eight years ago, you went off on your own to start Kilimanjaro, right? Well, we, we started Kilimanjaro as a joint venture with AEG. So we started on January the 1st, 2008. And then in 2012, we did a management buyout. So we bought ourselves out of the partnership with AEG. Okay, so Toby told me a little bit about this. They helped you guys raise capital to go and become a competitor in the UK. Yeah, I think Kilimanjaro came about for two different reasons. One was why I wanted it to happen. And the other was why Phil Anschutz and Tim Laiwiki wanted it to happen. And basically, the O2 was uh, brand new. The uh, Millennium Arena wasn't called the O2 then. And they were struggling with content. And so we basically came on board in that first four years to help fill an empty arena. In the course of those four years, we did close on 40 shows, a lot of which were filling empty weekends, shows at short notice, horse shows, opera shows, whatever we could really conjure up. So from AEG's perspective, they got what they needed from Kilimanjaro, which is we helped fill the building when it still needed content. The agenda from my side was to use AG's capital and clout to enable us to create the base for a new company. And we got what we wanted as well. So it was a great process. We helped Phil fill his $750 million arena and Phil's money helped create Kilimanjaro. Okay. And how long were you partners? We left in 2012. Okay. And you bought your freedom. Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it was the right time for us to move on. It made sense for AG for us to leave. There's no point promoting in a building that's yours and giving half those 
those promoter profits to somebody else when you've got your own promoting company. And so it made sense for us to leave for us and it made sense for them to let us go. Okay, so not a lot of people leave Live Nation and then go back independent and become a real competitor. And you guys have got a real foothold in the market. You're a real player here. I guess we have three or four different strands of business that we focus on. The first is new bands. And from having a standing start in 2008, we're lucky enough to promote bands or artists such as Ed Sheeran, 1975, Catfish and the Bottlemen, Bastille, Rag and Bone Man, Coasts, etc. And the common denominator with all of those is we've done them right from the very start. We've done shows with them all in pubs and clubs and then brought them through. And obviously the biggest example of that success is Ed. So that's the first strand, which is developing new talent. Second strand is stuff that we've worked with for many years. So we've always worked with Simply Red, going all the way back to 1985. We still work with Andrea Pacelli. We still work with the Chili Peppers. So there's a, there's a whole raft of business there. We have outdoor activities. So we in London, we have two summer series, one at Kew the Music, which is at Royal Botanical Gardens, one at Chelsea Royal Hospital. We book two festivals, one in the Northeast, one in Scotland. So that's the outdoor link or, or strand. Then we try trying to diversify as much as we can. So we're very much into comedy now, albeit it's a difficult market to break into, but we do Jerry Seinfeld, we do Louis C.K. Seinfeld doesn't self-promote over here, huh? No, no, he doesn't. He's only played here once in the last 10 years, and we did the O2 show with him. So. Does he have an agent here, or do you just work with Kevin Docterman directly on those? No, we deal with Rob Prince. Oh, okay. But, oh, that's uh, right. I yeah, he does that, have yeah. an agent. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. So, so comedy's an important strand. We do a lot of Edinburgh. We've got our first run in uh, the West End with a comedian called Tape Face. And Very indeed, big in the States right now. And it, yeah. I'm glad to hear that he is because we're also co-producing his Las Vegas run, which started two weeks ago and runs through to the end of May. Co-producing Las Vegas. You're playing in our field too. Yeah, in partnership with an American. Don't worry. <laughs> I have no fear and welcome the fact that you guys are coming over. I am not confrontational. That's not how I meant it. We work in partnership with a, a great Las Vegas-based producer called uh, Greg Young, who for years and years has done Donnie and Marie at the Flamingo. And we co-promote Donnie with him over here and Donnie and Marie over here. So it was very natural to go back and just say, do you want to do Tate Face? So we're doing that together. So we have that. And then we're also venturing into the world of theatre now. So we're silent investors in productions such as Groundhog Day, School of Rock, Kinky Boots, uh, Wicked. And then we've got about four or five small development shows. Internationally or just here in uh, Europe? We were in the audience on Broadway. I mean, Groundhog Day on Broadway. We're part of the Wicked International Tour. Uh, we're an associate producer on that. So very similar to Nederlander. Nowhere near that scale, I'm, I'm uh, uh, sorry to say. But a similar but to, model. Yeah, and, and what we're looking to do, though, is to become more involved in that world as a lead producer. So we've got three or four small productions that we're working on now. But you uh, diversified. Through. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason for the diversification is to give us a stronger, broader base. But also, there's no point... We're not the scale of Live Nation. We're not the scale of AEG. And if somebody comes up with a $200 million offer, we're not going to be able to match that. But we have great relationships with other artists and managers and agents, and we deliver a great service. So, And I think in the world of corporatism and consolidation, there's always a need and there's always a wish for an independent alternative. And we're very happy that many people use us as that. I'm Lucy Dickens from ITB, and I'm on Promoter 101. Tweet. Tweet. Of the week. Just in time for your 4th of July barbecue, we've got some tweets of the week. Let's start here. Everyone gets the short end of the stick from time to time. It's how you handle it that really affects your long-term play. Disrespecting anyone destroys the relationship. It's next to impossible to come back from that. You can find an issue with anything if you try hard enough. Of course you can. Or you can choose just not to be a dick. Stop looking for trouble. Luke, you can choose not to be a dick. I don't know if that's a choice, Dan. 
<laughs> certainly in some moments just doesn't feel like an option anymore. That's true. I've noticed, Dan, I have to say over these last 164, now 165 episodes, that your tweets have gotten a little bit softer, a little bit more magnanimous, a little bit more wise. Are you trying to share something with us here? I just know that your tweets have definitely gone in a little bit more of a softer direction. You're becoming less of a dick in your tweets, Dan. You know, I think part of it is, you know, maturity. The other part of it is I think people are afraid to email me shit that's going to be a tweet of the week. So people have gotten a little easier on me in general just because uh, they don't want to be the next lesson out there, I think. So, you know, I guess not a bad thing, huh? Like people just don't want to be made fun of or be the lesson. So everybody's just handling my show's just a little better. So it may not be working for the whole industry. I hope it is, but at least it's working for me. That'll just about do it for Tweets of the Week. Make sure you keep up with Dan on Twitter and all his magnanimous sayings. He's at the Jew. And I'll try to be a more of a dick as we get through some of these last episodes on my tweets. He's been sliding down. Now he's about to ramp up people. Get on Twitter. John Valentino with AEG Presents, and here we are on Promoter 101. In our featured interview in this, our 165th episode of this podcast, we are excited to welcome from Q Prime South, Fielding Logan. This is one of the touring and management specialists looking after the careers of some of the biggest names in country music and rock, from Eric Church, Ashley McBride, to the Black Keys, Fielding Logan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dan. Hey, Luke. Coming off quite a bit of a run. Eric Church recently at the stadium, followed by a CMA Fest appearance as well, too. So you've been you've been a busy June, man. What have you been up to? Yeah, that Eric Church um, stadium show was really amazing. You know, we had that show on sale for like nine months, and it was just in the last like three days that it hit me, like how big a thing it actually was. Eric said it best from stage. He said he came to town 15 years ago with big dreams, but they weren't that big. And I feel the same way, like... As his career grew from clubs to theaters and, and even to arenas, I don't think we ever really thought it would, could get to the point that it's gotten to. He's an incredible partner. He's the best. You guys are doing something creative this year. He's doing doubles in most markets, which some acts do two nights, but he could be doing stadiums in a lot of markets. But you guys decided we're not going to rush through cities. We're going to sit down in some more intimate 20,000 seat amphitheaters <laughs> as opposed to going to stadiums and doing twos and some arenas, what have you. But it really seems to be working for you. And I think you guys may have stumbled onto a new genre that I think we're going to see more acts really get into. Instead of building steel everywhere, you guys are going to go into existing places and maybe not hustle around the country quite so much. It's a really great idea. It was Eric's idea. We've done the theater tour a few times and he always is looking to do something different. So with the doubles, on the last tour, he really started doing unique shows, different set lists, you know, rehearsing a ton of material. John Peets, my boss, and Eric were really big on introducing the, the local flavor in each market. And we just kind of built on that. The economics of doing the double arenas are really appealing. Initially with Eric, we strive to have a, a low ticket price when he was, you know, first making that step. You know, over the last six years, I think we have recognized the value that Eric brings by doing 38 songs and three and a half hour shows. And we became comfortable with the idea that we didn't need to be embarrassed about trying to you know, set ticket prices that were more in line with the, the value that, that Eric was delivering. You know, Eric benefits from the fact that unlike a lot of contemporary country artists, he doesn't tour every year. You know, he typically tours in a little bit more of a rock and roll style. Yeah, high production rock show. High production part. rock show. And, and also in line with the release of an album where he will do the tour and then he'll either go away for a period of time or he will go do 
a handful of festivals in, in a non-headlining year. It's really benefited him. We have been able to set the ticket prices a little bit more in line with you know what they're worth as opposed to you know underpricing, which we all know what that leads to. How much of this fan-first ethos carries through from your management side and how much of it comes from the artists? Like, where do those conversations start out with you? Because you work with not just Eric, you work in Black Keys. There's Black a, Keys. a lot of similarities. You know, I mean, I think we and our artists are equally are fan-focused and driven by what we think fans want. And, and, you know, stepping down from our biggest artists, a new artist like Ashley McBride, you know, she, the CMA Music Festival just happened here in Nashville a few weeks ago, and Ashley McBride had a fan club party, and Ashley McBride sold 400 tickets that sold out basically instantly. She played, you know, some artists might play five or six songs at a fan club party. She played for an hour and a half. You know, she shook hands, signed autographs for every person that was there. I mean, she is extremely fan-focused, and even at this early stage of her career, her fans will kill for her. You know, Luke Combs is someone that, you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to just because I've never seen a as rapid a touring rise. I mean, he, he is not the first country artist that has had five number one singles out of the box, but he is the first country artist that I can think of that at the end of album one cycle is selling out every or, you know, every arena and every amphitheater that he plays on the on um, on the on sale. Yeah. Why is that? That is because Luke and Cappy, his manager and, and their team have they've done that fan first you know ethos from the very very beginning and that has paid huge dividends for them but before you found your way to being a q prime manager you had your days on the road yes i, I think we originally that's met. that's where we first met that's yeah. right this is eugene oregon at the secret house on the side stage with nickel yeah. creek this is like right around the folgers commercials days for them right that's right <laughs> this <would have> been, <laughs> it's true i know i know this would have been 2001 to 2004 i was um tour manager for the um, progressive acoustic act nickel creek how did you become a road manager? How did that come together? My first music business job after college in Nashville was working at a business management firm, FBM&M. Little shop that's still around? Yeah, we still do. Like 80% of our clients are, are with FBM&M. They're a great partner. I learned a ton about the business and about touring. And, you know, I saw show settlements and, and road reports and worked closely with tour managers and did tour budgets. And I learned stuff that I built on, you know, after that. But that exact role as an accountant probably, you know, was not the best fit for me. So, you know, after three or four years, I was looking to make a change and gave a lot of thought to getting out of the music business. I, I was, I was, I was thinking about getting out of the music business. And, um, my old roommate at the time, Jay Williams, who is, um, at, Wait, uh, you were roommates with Jay Williams. Uh, yeah, that yeah. just happened to be uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and at the same yeah. time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. This was what a uh, house this was. This was just reported in a little sidebar in, um, the Nashville issue of billboard magazine, uh, <laughs> little newsletter in town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jay Williams, before he becomes mega agent at William Morris, Dirks before he becomes a superstar and you before you're managing yeah, anybody. I mean, Jay was in the mailroom, Keith Miller's assistant. I had started at Flood Bumstead. Dirks was writing songs and working at maybe the Nashville Network dubbing VHS cassettes or something. 
Jay and I met through mutual friends. Dirks and I met from um, hanging out at the Station Inn and, and seeing a lot of bluegrass. And Jay was sort of uh, on the cusp of becoming a full-fledged agent. And this is around the year 2000 and had signed Nickel Creek. I had left Flood Bumstead and I was looking at stuff outside the music business. And Jay said, you should be Nickel Creek's tour manager. At the time, they were touring in a station wagon, had no crew on the road. It was the three of them and a bass player. And, and I was like, yeah maybe that might be a good idea. And um, Jay said, you got to meet John Peets. And, and we met and one thing led to another and I ended up getting out on the road with uh, Nickel Creek, which I did for about four years. So the transition off the road back into town. That was really pretty seamless. You know, John Peets was the band's manager. So he and I had worked very closely together for over those four years that I was on the road. Peets was building his roster, uh, you know, around that time was starting to talk to and then signed Eric Church, a couple other acts. And, you know, I think at the time he had like an office manager and one day-to-day manager and um, he needed another person in the office. I had turned 30 getting serious with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. I bought a house in Nashville and I was like ready to get off the road. You know, I was looking at some of those road dogs that make a career of it. And I, I knew that wasn't for me. You know, I wanted a, a little more stability in my in my life, a little more conventional lifestyle and, and wasn't really looking to, you know, hustle a, another job every year, you know. And But I loved it when I did it. And I think that like looking back on it, I would encourage anybody that is interested in our industry to get out on the road for a period of time. Was it Q Prime at the time? Was was uh, yeah, at Q Prime? Yeah, yes. So I started with Nickel Creek in the spring of 2001. And very soon after, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Minch approached John Peets about opening a Nashville Q Prime office. So when you've got two tours of that level, where Eric is doing stadiums and arenas and doubles, and you've got Black Keys out there doing arenas right now, simultaneously, like both in cycle, the resources that that drives from the staff, are you sleeping at all? There have been other times over the years where particularly maybe before we, these bands have gotten to the level that they are now where we have great tour partners promoting these tours. There have been times over the years where certainly trying to get together a 50-day tour for both bands at the same time using individual promoters in you know each market has been like, it has been very, very challenging. And, and yeah. there were a couple of times around 2010, 2011, 2012, where the album cycles lined up, the tours lined up, and it was, you know, it was really tough. Tough. You know, Louis Messina is Eric's tour promoter. Live Nation is doing the Black Keys. You know, each company brings robust teams to the project and feel a lot of support. And we are able to handle it because our, our partners are so good. Well, we look through the uh, the Q Prime roster of just some amazing acts and Q Prime South specifically with some up-and-comers like Ashton McBride, some established acts like Eric Church and Black Keys and... You've got this amazing musical roster for sure. What is your primary attraction when you're signing an artist? What are you What are you looking for? Is it something in that vein, or what do you look for first? Are you looking to sign a podcast? <laughs> Here's our tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we got you here, actually. Um, That's pretty good. <laughs> Over the years, you know, going back to Nickel Creek and and continuing through to you know acts that we you know some acts that we don't manage anymore. I think about a Rhiannon Giddens. Um, I think about brothers and Ashley and Eric and, and, and one of our newer signings, Brett Eldridge, 
We look for artists that have a clearly defined lane that they can own. And not only that, but, you know, we're looking for artists that are best in class. And, and that really was when we did Nickel Creek, there was no band that did music like that, you know, at the level that they did. They were unique in a way. I mean, they're, I see now in that progressive acoustic scene. A lot of younger, newer bands that were clearly influenced by, by Nickel Creek when they were more active and continue to be influenced by, you know, what Sarah's doing and, and I'm with her and what Chris is doing. So a best in class thing. And like, you know, Brett Eldridge, who we signed last year, he is an incredible vocalist. And, you know, one way you see that is those Christmas dates, the crooner Christmas dates yeah, that he did Chicago that are Theater. really, yeah, the Chicago Theater. You can see the stuff on YouTube. It's really um, unusual and it showcases his his voice shows that he is one of the best singers in, you know, certainly in country, if not, you know, the wider all music. Um, so that's what we're looking for is best in class and people, you know, that have a unique lane and they can own it. Now you said signing record labels, obviously have contracts when they sign an act. Agencies say they sign and they don't do paper. Do managers tend to do signing or do you actually have a contract usually? Over the years, managers in Nashville maybe didn't always have contracts. Maybe there were some handshake deals. Certainly on the rock side, Q Prime has typically had artist contracts. You know, when we were building our roster, you know, around the times we signed Eric Church and the Black Keys, we have a contract, yes. Luke, is that standard most managers paper acts at this point? Because it's standard that most agencies don't, right? Well, I mean, there is some paperwork with agencies for sure that you're signing up, but it's a little bit briefer. And I think what you're probably alluding towards is that the resources, time invested in development that gets you there need to be protected from a manager's perspective. Yeah, and actually, um, I, I can give a couple examples about uh, of this. We at Q Prime, we are fortunate that, you know, the company has tremendous resources. And, you know, there have been many times over the years where we have either deferred or just waived commissions while an act, you know, gets established. I mean, we, you know, Eric did not pay us commissions for a period of time in the early days. And, I imagine and, he started to though now. Uh, yeah, he does. He, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Ashley McBride, before she signed her record deal, we made the album. We had taken all the promotional photos. We had made music videos, you know, and so that's quite an investment. Yeah, your own a, pockets. a big investment. Yeah. But but like I cannot think of a single time where we had to like enforce like something that was in the contract, you know, like just, we, it's just there's a guideline. Yeah, we are willing to make the investment and maybe it gives us some protection. But we've had acts over the years that that have gone on to have a lot of success that maybe weren't the perfect fit for us. But I mean, Nashville, you don't want to do that here. You know, it's a small town. It's a small industry town, although it's grown a lot. We've never actually needed it. Is what I'm saying. The difference between agencies and managers is because once the live show's over, the act's paid and it doesn't matter. If you guys make an album, that album will continue to sell forever and the manager still gets the cut of that album that they helped produce and get out there. Yeah. And my friends in the agency world, I mean, they'll commission a $250 um, when that, the act is taking tour support. And, and I mean, you know, this is because they don't have, like you said, they don't have contracts. So they, it is more of a pay as you go kind of thing with the agencies, no matter how low the fees are. Right. And rising tides rise all ships. So when Eric finally breaks that single, his back catalog is going to sell too. That's true. Yeah, that's true too. When you really go from like clubs to arenas, the numbers, you know, looking back on it, it is like a small amount of money, you know, at the outset for, you know, for where it can go. 
We should talk for a second about records, too, because in country music, a format still driven a lot in development by radio, you've been kind of groundbreaking in another area with streaming, with your partnership with Jay and Apple Music, releasing live concert tapings with Eric. In a format that's been so driven by physical sales and downloads, it really hasn't necessarily made the transition to the streaming audience, at least fully yet. And I think a lot of that is still happening. And you seem to be kind of on the leading edge with a lot of the things that you're doing with all of your clients in that space. So can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of an audience transitioning from owning music to accessing music through streaming and what that's been like in country music? I'll try to talk about it. So the streaming stuff is not me. Like I am touring, you know, I talk to the promoters and booking agents and the promoters, marketers and whatnot. But Apple has been a great, you know, Jay and Apple have been a great partner. You're Spot- talking about Jay Lebus, yeah, yeah, Jay so Lebus. Just, yeah, you know, yeah. Spotify is can be a great partner. You know, we go on a case by case basis, and you know, sometimes one of our streaming partners just comes with an incredible plan, you know, and they, you know, maybe they want a, you know, one week or two week exclusive or something. But in exchange for that, they're going to give us like, you know, exposure on A, B and C other platforms. Maybe it's going to be part of a television campaign. Maybe it's going to be part, you know, it's going to be outdoor advertising associated with it. We're working on something with, you know, Ashley right now that, you know, by the time this airs, it'll probably be out, but it's going to be a you know, huge look for her with one of our streaming partners. Okay. So, so what I really like about the industry, some of the social circle of things like you being friends with Jay 25 years ago or something, being roommates, and you guys still get to work together now on X. It's like the industry is so amazing. And we see a very similar social circle. So it's like notice that the industry is really big on people just want to work with their friends opposed to a random email address they don't know. So you found that to be big in particularly in this industry town where it's just like People are guided to want to work with their friends, and that just makes it an easier path sometimes. Definitely. And that's what at first attracted me to Nashville. I moved here in the fall of 1996 after I graduated from college. Ironically, I didn't really know there was a music business. I'm a lifelong music fan. You know, I play a little music. I've played in a few bands. What'd you play? I got really into bluegrass music in like, you know, eighth grade or something. And I play a little guitar and a little bit of, um, you know, mandolin and fiddle and whatnot. So I had a little bluegrass band in college and played some you know, played some party gigs in Virginia and whatnot. And, um, you know, moved down here and got a job at the Station Inn, and which, you know, they hadn't hired anybody in like five years. And, you know, on a normal night, there was like one person worked the door and collected the money. And then there was one person working behind the bar. And that would have been me. I, yeah, I got to meet like all these people that are like, they were like my heroes, you know. And I, I remember one night down there early, you know, seeing Tim O'Brien hanging behind the bar I'd seen. You know, I worked out in Wyoming in college and I'd seen Hot Rise at, at Rocky Grass in 1994. You know, Sam Bush came down and sat in with the the house band the night that John Duffy from the seldom scene and the country gentleman died. And I just got to see I got to see so much unbelievable stuff. Were you a fanboy when those guys came in? Oh, big time. (laughs) Yeah, I was a total fanboy. But I got to meet the McCurries and Mike Bubb and Charlie Cushman and Richard Bailey and all these incredible players. And at the same time, through my social circles, I I met a lot of people in town that were that were hosting um, like engagement parties and and, um, law firm parties and insurance company parties. And I ended up getting this little like party band together. But and I would I would be able to tap some of my heroes and again some of the best like Richard Bailey who was in the, is in the Steel Drivers with yeah. Chris Stapleton like Richard Bailey would play banjo or Charlie Cushman who's in the Earls of Leicester with uh, Jerry Douglas um, Mike Bubb played with me one time 
Terry Eldridge, you know, who sang on Dirks's first Capitol record and is in the Grascals, you know, and, and incredibly is Brett Eldridge's cousin. Terry would play bass. But so I got to play with all these heroes of mine. But I did uh, I did very quickly find uh, I, I, I realized what a poor singer and poor uh, player I was. Well, you know, you're holding your life in comparison. You, yeah. Like, yeah comparison to some of the greatest guys yeah, in the world. Like, like, Bailey, yeah, you know? yeah. Like Richard Bailey would, you know, or, I'm or, pretty good for a high school college band. But when you're looking at Grammy winning performers. Yeah. Maybe not. And, and, uh, and it w- not only that, it was like, you know, the, you know, whoever I, whoever I had tapped on a given night to like play the banjo, you know, would put down the banjo and grab, you know, the guitar or the mandolin or the fiddle and would just like blow my mind, you know? And so it wasn't that I like that my guitar playing wasn't keeping up with the banjo players, banjo playing or the, you know, it was my right. guitar playing wasn't keeping up with anybody's <laughs> good guitar playing. That's the one thing about Nashville that I love too, is any given night, there might be a, a party somewhere where some of the best players in the world are just like sitting in randomly and like there's a keg flowing. Talking about the station in, you know, of all the amazing places to see music in Nashville, you've got the Ryman Auditorium, we've got a beautiful amphitheater and an amazing arena that's routinely in the top five pole star scores the world the station in and god i hope they never sell that place or turn it into the w or whatever it's nestled in between the w and the thompson i've seen some incredible stuff from dan Auerbach jumping up there to no Dirk jumping up there no i mean doubt. like that that is where you see some of the best it, music in town it's, it's a legendary spot and back to the this original question you know i was attracted to nashville because it was kind of a sleepy backwater and because you know, when you walked out of the out of the station in, you know, in the gulch at night, you know, the only other business down there that was open after five o'clock was Madame X, the um, adult bookstore that was around the corner that is no longer there. There's an apartment building where Madame X was. But, you know, because it was a big little town back then, you, you did get to make you know, relationships like beyond Jay, Mark Dennis, or guys that have been in town as long as I have, you work with them on, on something and then, you know, you work with them on something else and, you know, you see them out at showcases. And, you know, it's just like over the last five or 10 years, as we all know, like Nashville has radically changed. And and I wouldn't say all for the better. I mean, it certainly is great that we have had so many incredible agents, especially in our business, people that have, have, you know, relocated, you know, like, I mean, Manning, you know, yeah, Brian Manning, Adam, Voith, Seth Siegel, Jonathan at Paradigm. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, yeah, all the all those folks at Paradigm. I mean, so I do feel really lucky that now people like you come to us. We don't have to like go to New York or LA all the time because we do we have achieved a serious, you know, critical mass. And, you know, think about like how Live Nation has expanded their footprint in Nashville just in the last like four years. AEG right. is expanding their footprint here with the you know the venue they're the venues they're building on Broadway. So I mean I guess you kind of have to take the bad with the good, but you know all in all, it, you know Nashville is an exciting place to be, and you know it does feel like I mean for our business it's pretty happening. Is there something that you're excited about right now that's you know getting you up every morning? Yeah, you know what I'm excited about is in the middle of our roster, Brett Eldridge, Brothers Osborne, Ashley McBride. All three are poised to make the jump to the next level in a big way. You know, all three are working on albums, which will be pivotal albums in their careers. You know, I think the the reason Brett Eldridge signed with Q Prime South is because he recognized the kinds of albums 
that you know our artists make when they you know, really engage John Peets. Like Peets is is brilliant at you know A and R process and and you know helping. He is so good at, at picking songs, understanding like what songs are going to fit together to tell a particular you know, the story that needs to be told on a particular album with Ashley working on her second album for Warner and Brothers Osborne working on their third album, 2020 and 2021 should be really exciting years for those three. Good things to come from Q-Front. Thank you so much for taking time and yeah. talking to Thanks, us from Motor 101. Yeah. Thanks, Luke. Yeah. It was great having Fielding here. He just lays it down. And I got to say, it was really nice to have Luke sitting back in on some interviews again. It's it's really awesome to see you and uh, Fielding just hit it off so well. It seems like there's a virgining bromance right there. There is a virgining bromance right down to the Brooks Brothers he was wearing that day, Dan. I got to say, love it for Sperry's. I do see some similarities between the two of you guys. It was like, hey, that was a fun hang. We, we must have been together for a couple hours, the three of us, and that was just a really good time. So I enjoyed that hang quite a bit and always fun to catch up with Fielding because he's got a next level mind. He does have a next level mind. This is Karen from 10 Club Ticketing, and I'm on Promoter 101. Episode 165 of Promoter 101 in the bag. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this podcast. And thank you to our amazing guests this week from Q Prime South, Fielding Logan, and of course, the ineffable, irreplaceable Vince Bannon coming back on the podcast, dropping in with a war story. Thanks so much for your time. If you like what you heard today in the podcast, shoot us an email at steiny at promoter101.net. Tell us what's on your mind. We want to hear it. We'll be back this coming Monday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain Standard, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. on the Eastern Seaboard. Join us then on episode 166. We're going to have an amazing featured interview with Surefire Media's Rebecca Shapiro, one of the best publicists out there in the game. So great to turn the tables on an actual publicist and one of the best in the business to actually see her answer the questions instead of coaching was an amazing thing. It reminds me of an old West Wing quote that I'm going to fuck up, but just because you can train a jockey doesn't mean that you can sit a horse, which is interesting to say the least, but she did a great job and it was really fun hanging out with her class act for sure. Rebecca Shapiro. But until then we're wishing you sold out shows and a banging up holiday 4th of July weekend. My friends be safe out there and be sure to call your mother. Wish her a happy fourth. She worries, Dan. She worries. Cheers. Cheers. This is Jason Ross. I work for SCG Presents in Seattle, and I'm on Promoter 101.